working. Thanks for the invitation. Um, I'm going to take two minutes right now and do something I wasn't planning to do, which is to celebrate Colleen and Nunu a little bit. Because I've been standing in the back feeling kind of emotional because I've known her for 10 years. And um, listening to her speak, I know she went downstairs. Um, whatever list of coffee heroes that you think you have, I want you to etch in stone the name of Colleen and Nunu into that list. And the reason is because, not just because, I don't know how many minds, I saw minds popping and blowing left and right, but the trajectory from barista and coming up through Roaster, Green Coffee by her for Gimme, and then now the work that she's been doing and the studies that she's been putting in, and that's the kind of part that sometimes we don't really celebrate in this industry very well. Um, she's laid a pathway for all of us in this room and thousands of people. If you're watching this video right now and you have not seen Colleen's video, stop this video now. <laughs> Go watch Colleen's video. I will be waiting here when you come back. Um, but uh, her perspective embodies all the goodness, good intentions, geekery, knowledge, like commitment, like customer service, all that stuff that we have. And she's taking it and just blazing a trail for all of us right now. And I just can't uh, say enough. So can we just one more big round of applause for Colleen. Okay, so I'll start my talk. Um, I bring you good news today. And that good news is that specialty coffee is as trendy as ever. In San Francisco, where uh, my wife Trish and I call home, all over the world, bef uh, never before have so many people been interested in specialty coffee. More newspapers, more magazines, more blogs, more TV. Specialty coffee is getting more coverage and interest than ever, and it's only going to increase in popularity. Okay, here's some more good news. It's not a bubble that's going to pop. Specialty coffee isn't popular because it's fashionable. It's popular because it's delicious. Coffee is not purely a uh, social construct. It's um, mostly a social construct. That's true. But it also, uh, we like it because of a little factor called human evolution. We like sweet things. We like sweet and acidic things. We like sweet, acidic, and complex things. Things with a little bitterness, but not too much bitterness. These things are a part of our DNA. Here's a... Uh, the briefest history of coffee you'll ever see and how we got to where we are today. Once upon a time, humankind discovered coffee. Then it went everywhere. And then James Hoffman, the end. <laughs> and this is where we are today. Okay, I skipped over a lot of stuff, but I do think it's important to acknowledge that we've come a long way since the days before specialty coffee. Common usage of milk and sugar and later flavored syrups help to keep coffee kind of dumbed down. If you're in, let's say, automobile racing, you don't really have to worry about aerodynamic drag, that is the way that the shape of the car either cuts through or pushes against a mass of air. Unless you have so much horsepower, that aerodynamics starts to become a limiting factor. Similarly, uh, nobody was that concerned about temperature stability in espresso machines or the differences between Arabica cultivars until the market developed a taste for black normative coffee culture 
versus a milk and sugar normative one and until we were able to produce coffee beverages of a certain minimum standard of what we call specialty. In fact, when everyone is so concerned about defining specialty or speciality coffee, one definition could absolutely be that specialty coffee is post-black coffee. You don't need a qualifier like black when it is what it is. You don't look at a person across the way and go, hey, look at that living person over there. No, because living is obvious. Like we say dead person because we're supposed to be alive, right? But why do we call coffee sometimes black? Well, because in that world, most coffee isn't black. It comes with milk and sugar. In specialty coffee, whether it's what the majority of our customers are doing, we can say our coffee is designed to drink without additives. That's how coffee comes in specialty coffee. Milk and sugar aren't the norm in specialty coffee. They're either compliments or they're corrections. As sort of an aside, uh, this is actually an idea that my wife Trish came up with a while ago, differentiating between compliments and corrections. A compliment is an addition that someone adds to coffee that's already good, but to make it taste the way that they want it to, okay? A correction is something that is added to the coffee to cover up bad flavor and to make it taste less bad. We can allow for milk and sugar as compliments because if that's how they like it, then that's how the customer likes it. But if it's something that requires a correction, regardless of the green coffee that we used or the trendy techniques that we used to brew it, maybe the coffee isn't quite so specialty after all. So we've established that specialty coffee is, at least to the majority of our customer base, who may not know, even know the term specialty coffee, it's good tasting coffee, better tasting coffee, coffee that doesn't need corrections. But that means specialty coffee should need nothing to hide behind. Being part of the third wave of coffee professionals means that we can't really hide our problems. Second wave coffee was sort of like always wearing a big bulky winter coat. Why worry about being healthy and having a nice body when you're always bundled up? Third wave coffee is like living at turtle summers on the beach. Nothing to hide behind, everything's out there. We can't hide behind our problems, but then what are our problems? And what's our biggest problem? So there are some very smart people in this room, but it doesn't take a genius to, when faced with the question, what's the biggest problem in coffee, to immediately go to climate change. It's climate change, right? Like, what could be a bigger problem than the end of the world? or the end of all coffee as we know it, right? Well, that's not what actually uh, what I mean by problem. At the risk of playing semantics, climate change is undeniably the biggest threat to us and to coffee. Um, we talk about labor and land use issues and things like that. Those are major threats. But what's the biggest problem? Problem that we as an industry can solve on the consuming side. What's the biggest problem with us? You see, we have a tendency in our uh, consumer side coffee industry, and particularly in the specialty uh, coffee industry, to when thinking about problems that need solving, to look outside of ourselves, to point the finger firmly away from us and at some other force. The problem with coffee is the way those farmers pick their cherries, or because someone's limiting producers' access to the best practices, technologies, and markets. The problems with coffee shops, there are some companies out there that are confusing our customers with bad messages and mixed messages about quality and what coffee can be. Problem with gender bias is at the World Barista Championship, it's not gender bias, it's something else. Maybe it's climate change. World Coffee Research, one of the newest bright and shining jewels of our specialty coffee industry, has as its mission to grow, protect, and enhance supplies of quality coffee while improving the livelihoods of the families who produce it. But what about research into coffee brewing science? About grinding, roasting? I actually asked 
this question to Tim Schilling, who's the executive director of World Coffee Research. And he gave me a very straightforward answer with no hesitation. World Coffee Research is pre-competitive. The focus is and must be on the, uh, on the problems at coffee origin that we on the consuming side share as an industry. Focus on the problems that can unite us and unite our funding as thriving businesses in the top consuming countries. Not the problems with me, not the problems with you, not the problems with us. Over the past 15 years, specialty coffee worldwide has experienced a lot of improvements up and down the value chain. While we didn't have them before, now we have like micro lots and Kenyan drying beds all over the place, high-minded exporters, grain pro bags, uh, baristas, roasters, coffee buyers, list goes on. The short version of the story of this improvement is that as roasters were growing, growingly dissatisfied with the information they could get from importers and exporters about green coffee, baristas were growingly, growingly dissatisfied with their tools and techniques and roasted coffee that we were all working with. We roasters and green buyers began to demand more information and sometimes flying ourselves to coffee farms to learn what we could. The competitions that would become the World Barista Championship started and techniques and skills started improving through a competition vehicle. Around the same time, the Cup of Excellence started, hoping to improve farming and processing through a competition and auction vehicle. In both circumstances, the early days were arguably the most exciting. And as the participants around them started learning very quickly what worked and what didn't work, and dosing and tamping techniques to proper picking and drying, word spread beyond the competition community, and real quality improvements were realized, and lives were changed, and the coffee industry has never been the same. But back to focusing again on our side of things, there was a time when barista championships helped teach each other better skills and eliminate uh, major flaws in technique, and they've inspired thousands of baristas and our colleagues to step up our respective games. However, they really haven't done that good of a job of actually building knowledge. And at some point around 2008, they stopped being about collective improvements and more about trends and fads and things like that. So I want to get from there to what, again, I think is the main biggest problem that we have to face in coffee. And that is, we're not actually very good at what we do. I think Matt touched on this a lot, and this is a, somewhat of a thread, um, even with Colleen's talk as well. We're specialty coffee. The promise of specialty coffee is that we tell everyone that they, uh, and, th and that they want to believe, is that we have the coffee that they want to drink. We want to give people what's truly delicious and wonderful and perfect, but what is it that we actually encounter when we go into our own shops and each other's shops? How many of us can relate to this story? So we're somewhere, we're either in our hometown or some town somewhere else, and there's a list or one or two places that are like the best specialty coffee shops in that town. So you go, and you have a coffee, and you don't think it's very good. For us coffee people, this happens again and again, but do we realize what this means? It means we're all snobby jerks. No, just kidding, but it's a fair question. How is it that the legitimately best coffee shops are so frequently so disappointing? The answer is we're actually not that good at what we do. Almost a year ago, I opened Twitter to find this article. And it was written by this guy right there. His name is Matt Buchanan. 
Uh, some of you guys know him. Some of you are sneering already, I can see it. He used to write for Gizmodo, BuzzFeed, The New Yorker Magazine, TheAll.com. Now he's one of the editors at Eater.com. He's been a fan of specialty coffee for many years, and some of his uh, good friends are coffee professionals. He's a very smart guy, and he's writing articles about coffee that are upsetting a lot of people here in New York, right? Why? Because he believes that coffee in New York is not very good, and his voice has a fair, fairly wide reach uh, as a writer for mainstream media. But here's the thing about Matt. We trained him how to taste coffee. We taught him what the standards of what great coffee should be, and we hate him for holding us to those standards. It's because we believe we're doing a good job, but we're really not. Matt thinks actually that the problem is with the New York coffee scene, but he's actually wrong. It's all of us. World Coffee Research is able to hit the ground running because agriculture and climatology and plant genetics, those are fields with many PhDs, but coffee on our side of the value chain, while it involves, involves chemistry and physics and engineering and fluid dynamics and stuff like that, our work and jobs are actually built on a pitifully thin collective brain trust of knowledge about what we do. A big problem about our knowledge base is actually related to the often but rarely uh, thoughtfully discussed issue of gender biases and inequalities in coffee. That is, and let me break it down to the core issue. So every specialty coffee shop, there's some dude who's talking, 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 talking about like saying stuff, sounding smart, but actually knowing very little to nothing about what they're talking about. And over on this side are his coworkers, many of whom are women, doing the actual work, and actually more work than the actual work because they have to make up for the work that talking, talking, talking guy's not doing, right? But my point is, right now, actually, that's the way that a large percentage of especially coffee knowledge is exchange and education happens. If you ask baristas at third wave cafes where they learn what they know about coffee, it's either through the resident coffee nerd on staff or it's what they read on the internet. Because, and here's where I think we may find a solution to our problem. We don't have institutionalized education in coffee. By institutionalized education, I'm talking about accredited college and university level education, combining the relevant sciences and liberal arts with specialized coffee curricula. This is what I believe is the best solution to our problem that we're not actually that good at what we do. When we don't have institutionalized education in coffee, we don't have the rel relevant research that goes with it and relying on business to provide us with those resources. But the well-funded larger companies, we've all heard about these sort of stories, these are big uh, companies that do their own research, but they don't really share very much knowledge, and there's really nothing on the horizon that gives us any indication that's gonna change. When we don't have institutionalized uh, education in coffee, our knowledge base is very shallow. Many of us in this room are, by some definitions, coffee experts. We're experts because we know more than anyone about coffee. But when we were, if we were to write all that stuff down and compare it to the number of pages in a book that our knowledge might fill, it, it ends up being very small. Uh, if we didn't repeat the content, we could take every class that the entire specialty coffee industry has to offer, and we'd be done in a few weeks. When we don't have institutionalized education in coffee, we lose a vetting mechanism. While I acknowledge that like, college university systems aren't perfect, there is some value in the idea that if you weren't able to make it in school, maybe you should find something else to do. Uh, just as important are the ways that ideas are vetted. 
Uh, Matt also talked about this a little bit, I think, right? When there are so many educated eyes and ears on what you're teaching, it's not easy, it's not as easy to slip invalid ideas past your peers. Let me share a little example with you. We've got our chalkboard up here, okay? I'm gonna throw an equation on the board. DC over DT, you didn't know there was math today, equals K bracket C sat minus C. Can anyone tell me what this equation means? Okay, well, D's derivative, if you remember from calculus, how many people took calculus? A few of you, right? C is, uh, stands for concentration. C sat is the concentration at saturation, the point that where, at which the solvent, the water, cannot hold any more solute. T is time, and uh, K is something, uh, it's the um, mass transfer coefficient. It's, it would actually be a, 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 a constant, okay? Why am I showing this right now? Well. Maybe it's not so obvious. Let's move this around. Like, why does this matter? Okay, so we're moving ahead. Doesn't necessarily make much more sense. So now we've solved for C, but for what? Like, what does this mean, right? Well, let me explain what this means. If we were to graph this out, and on the y-axis, we had concentration. So concentration, brew strength for our brewing nerds, right? Okay? and. On the x-axis was T for time, and that's where our concentration at saturation point is. We know that as time goes on, that concentration goes up. Does that make a little bit more sense now? A little bit more, huh? So this is a simple equation, simple model for a what's called a mass transfer equation. It helps predict the way that coffee solids would spread through a static brew environment like a French press or a cupping bowl. Now, I said this model was simple, and there's a lot missing here. The mass transfer uh, coefficient K would vary greatly in a static environment versus something like a pour-over brew or espresso where there's a constant uh, refreshing of water. And this model doesn't even begin to address complexities like grind particle size variances and the shape of the particles and carbon dioxide release and thermal changes, all that uh, temperature changes. I could go on and on. But I got this equation through someone who's become a friend. A little bit of sound. His name is uh, Bill Ristenpart. He's a professor of chemical engineering at the University of California, Davis, UC Davis. He's been working on learning and teaching about coffee from the perspective of chemical engineering. I had the pleasure of being a guest lecturer at his uh, class last semester. It's called The Design of Coffee. Um, however, Dr. Ristenpart there, he'd be the first one to acknowledge that his understanding of coffee is actually very limited. And we can't just look to people like him to solve all of our problems and give us all our answers. Again, that mass transfer equation, you can see right there, that's like that little graph there. This is him, this is a recorded Skype call, him ex explaining this, this stuff to me. <laughs> that's my voice. Um, that mass transfer equation, though it might look really impressive, is very, very, very simple and limited to a guy like him. And develop something like that, but that starts to really unlock some mysteries and such for us and be of practical use to coffee people would take a lot of work. And it's something that just doesn't exist right now in the world, but it should. And the thing is it could. You may have heard that UC Davis is working on a coffee center to develop alongside their world-renowned wine center that could be really one of the most significant resources to emerge in the coffee world since maybe ever. They announced a big pledge from Pete's Coffee recently to build a roasting facility, but UC Davis still has a long way to go. They need to raise a lot of funds and um, uh, establish a lot more partnerships. 
So we can't hang, hang all of our hopes and dreams on UC Davis, but accredited undergraduate and postgraduate university level education is the next logical step in our industry's evolution. We're past the point of reading blogs and forums and Twitter and going to competitions or Cup of Excellence can be relied upon as the most significant resources that can do some of the heavy lifting that moves our industry forward. Now, this is an idea that I've actually, oops, sorry. I thought I fixed this. That's okay. Him again. Um, now, this is an idea that I've been sharing with colleagues around the world for a few years now. And in general, people agree with me, but there's one point that people have, some people brought up that gives me pause, which is, where will these people, you saw, where will these people find jobs? Fine, so these institutions are built, research occurs, education happens, diplomas are awarded, but that also means tuition needs to get paid, and there needs to be some kind of return on the investment. So to justify such a thing, these graduates are gonna need jobs, and won't these people be way overqualified to be a barista? Uh, won't they be so overqualified that only the biggest coffee companies could afford them? And then, again, uh, there goes that knowledge. It's not part of this collective community. It's sort of a make-or-break question, isn't it? Here's the message that I'd like to close with you today. So, we know they're green coffee buyers. They taste the coffee and they select them for purchase. And to do this well, they have to learn about coffee farming and processing and the relevant factors that, uh, that contribute to coffee flavor. There's roasters, need to know how to transform that green coffee, which itself is not consumable, uh, and using their measurement tools and heat and drum speed and the equipment, first crack, second crack, all that sort of stuff, right? There are baristas whose job it is to transform the whole bean coffee into the best beverage they can, knowing the characteristics of the coffee, the grind, profiles, water quality, flow rates, all that sort of stuff. At most coffee companies, the coffee department, that is the people who are responsible for the coffee itself, are split up into some version of these three departments, green buyer, green department, like roasting, and uh, barista, brewing. In a typical coffee company, coffee flows through these three sets of hands, and each does its assigned job. Green department buys the best coffee, buys the best coffee it can, the roasters roast the best coffee they can, the baristas brew the best coffee that do the best job that they can. The top, most well-respected coffee companies pretty much all run this way. Each department does the best they can, and hopefully you have the best, most highly skilled people in charge of each of those departments. But I wanna share an idea with you today. If you're a highly skilled expert in your particular department, green buying, roasting, or barista, but you have very limited knowledge and understanding of the other departments, the other parts of, the, of that process, You've, in fact, limited your own understanding of your own thing. The, if a roaster doesn't, and Matt touched on this as well, if the roaster doesn't understand brewing, then he actually doesn't understand roasting. A ch world champion barista who knows very little about green coffee has limited understanding about what they're doing as a barista. Even setting that aside, I'd like to propose to you that that sort of three department, three director mo model with a pers one person in charge of green, one person in charge of roasting, one person in charge of the beverage preparation side, is a flawed and inferior way to run a coffee company. A symphony orchestra does not have three conductors, one for each section. No matter how skilled each of these con conductors might be, without one fulfilled, one uh, unified vision for your end product, 
you're not maximizing the potential for that orchestra to create beautiful music. Symphony orchestra does not have three conductors, and a quality-focused specialty coffee company should not either. However, this is the way that most specialty coffee companies operate. Over the past of, uh, few years, there have been many professionals who carry the title director of coffee at their respective companies, but this might be an appropriate title for this type of coffee conductor, and it's used, but it's used been probably too often and for too many job descriptions. Maybe it's not really very useful anymore. I've been thinking about the ways the term like executive chef is sort of relevant, but like executive barista, pff, that sounds terrible. Uh, how about coffee master? Like I gave a t version of this talk before, and coffee master is actually my last slide. But like I found out later that it's a certain designation for a certain job at Starbucks, and also we have that coffee competition that happens with this name, you know, the one where they bring in baristas from other countries and then they come here and they win. <laughs> uh, it's not a bad name though. Like there's things about it that I like a lot. Um, chief coffee executive, Pfft, yuck. Uh, how about specialty coffee director? Maybe, I don't know. Um, so maybe we can have university programs for coffee professionals. And while specialty coffee director or whatever we might call this position wouldn't be the only sort of professional position that these schools would produce, it's one that I believe the specialty coffee industry deserves and one that it really needs. There are problems that we can solve and problems whose solutions are beyond our grasp. But the fact that we can be much better coffee professionals than we are today and that we can have a much better coffee industry than we have today, that's not just a problem. That's an opportunity for us all. Thank you. My, my daughter took that picture. I'm very proud of it. You look, you look so You happy. know, by the way, I just realized I kind of look like a weird purple Han Solo. <laughs> it just kind of dawned on me. The open vest thing is not cool. It's not hot. It's just, I've been doing it all day. It's a very coffee thing. That was excellent. It's really interesting. Um, do I have to learn how to roast coffee? Is that, do I have to do that now? I, I mean, that, that sort of last point, um, to have someone who goes into, who is like the executive chef in that way, and if, if you hire someone like that, and you have a sort of meeting with the executives or management or whatever, and say, okay, like, how do we want our coffee to taste? And he kind of talked that through, and then that person's able to go, got it, going to make it happen, and understands the green and the roasting and the, the brewing side of it well enough to where you can actually sort of will the coffee to taste that way. I can't do that. I don't think anyone can really do that right now, but I think that's a worthwhile goal, and it's one that I think represents progress. And would that, would that include agronomy and everything before it lands on our shores? It's because a good question. That people have brought that up, too. Because I thought earlier, I can't remember whose talk it was, the, the, the thought, you know, something just drops into your head, the thought of growing for solubility would be an interesting one. Interesting. <laughs> that's another talk. That's right. I... Um, I'm kind of interested in the, the orchestra part and the conductor, because quite often the conductor can't play the trumpet and play the violin. He's, like, he doesn't have the understanding of how to do them, just has the vision. Is it the visionary that's important or the actual practicalities that are important? I mean, I, I, well, I'm a big fan of analogies. 
Trish hates my analogies most of the time. It's, and it's not a perfect one, you know, but, but the idea that the conductor, again, has a point of view and has sort of an end goal in mind and can make that happen, that's sort of what that, or that, I think that was the best analogy I could come up with. Because you can kind of use the idea of Steve Jobs at Apple was the, probably the worst technician ever at building things and wasn't a designer, but had the overall vision of what he wanted the right people around him to do the right job. And I'm just kind of trying to figure out whether this college, you know, education that you go and get is to have the overall knowledge and understanding, but not necessarily the practicalities or whether you feel the practicalities are important. I, I feel like this is out of reach right now, but it's not impossible. It doesn't seem impossible. Whereas, like, the Steve Jobs situation is a little bit different. I mean, those engineers, that's, like, decades of engineering that the technology is built on. So with the design and that and the other thing, like, it's, it's again, people can have, like, a director-conductor kind of role there, but they might not need to be, like, fully understand that kind of thing. But as much as you can learn to be able to manage other people, you know, we've talked about this before and, and people have pointed out like, but you still need those department heads who are experts at their respective things. And I'm like, sure, but, that, but to not have that unifying sort of uh, vision and instead be like, green people do the best they can. And uh, we've seen it a lot, most companies, like they hand it to the roasters and the roasters are like, what do I do with this? And then they're like, figure it out. And they figure it out. And then they hand it off to the baristas, and the is like, I don't, I'm having trouble dialing this in. That's your problem, you know, kind of thing. It's a little bit more of the classic second wave sort of model as opposed to the more idealized, like we all work together. But it still kind of works that way. And um, it, I think that, like, to have that, it's almost like a, like a metaphor of, like, there's, like, this wall, and there's a hole, and the coffee just shows up, and then it's, like, the next step in the factory. But I'd, I'd much rather him brew and me roast it than the other way around. <laughs> like, I really well, would. we should try that. No, we really shouldn't, Carl. We shouldn't. Uh, it reminds me, I went to a talk in Ireland once. There's a very famous distillery in Ireland called the Cooley Distillery, and they make many of the best Irish whiskies. And the guy who owned that and then later opened the, uh, the Teething Whiskey Distillery doesn't drink alcohol. And somebody asked him, how can you own a distillery if you don't drink alcohol? And he said, well, I also owned a very successful factory that made women's underwear, but I never wore any of them either. And that was his response. So. But he, uh, they do incredible quality. He's never touched, he never touches but alcohol. But somebody does. It's true. Right. Maybe it's not him. We should throw it out to questions. Does anybody have a question? Typical at the back. Right. All the way back. No, not that guy. Uh... Hi, Nick. I really appreciate your analogy, and I think there's probably a lot of people in this room thinking, that's so cool, I want to be the coffee conductor of my company. But would you say that your analogy requires us all being professionals and being willing to go along with that point of view that our company has and learning the difference between our own personal preferences and embracing the point of view of the product that we're buying, roasting, serving? I mean, I think that that's there's always going to be that kind of diversity. You know, I, I think that... Our current um, model, let's say, of specialty coffee professional has seemed to develop a lot of like, I don't not ego, but like strong points of view. People kind of, it's almost like their religion, like this, their secular religion they carry around. This is my ideology. This is what I believe about coffee. And in that way, like academia tends to, you know, eschew that kind of perspective. Like you have to learn it all. And then once you learn it all, then you get deserve to have a perspective, you know, to some degree, or at least develop it and really run with it. Another, Another question? question? Oh. Hi. 
Hi, Colleen. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> um, I, I love uh, to get your perspective on um, sort of a coffee buyer who has more of a, like, a stronger understanding of like, finances uh, for their organization. You know, for instance, Andrew Diday from Stumptown was sort of the regional director for Seattle area before he became their coffee buyer and brought a whole different skill set um, to the way that they are able to contract coffee and scale coffee and what that meant for their organization as they grow. And, um, you know, I would, I would definitely say that, you know, we're within the understanding of coffee quality and brewing and roasting, there's also this other really hefty financial aspect as well that needs to be considered. You were right. <laughs> yeah. Whatever your question was, the answer is you're right. <laughs> yeah. You're absolutely right. And you know, with this, it does come up fairly often. We talk about social stuff. We talk about, you know, sometimes it's, this is, I wanted to kind of talk something a little bit closer to the coffee, even though it's not actually like brewing science or something like that either. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, that's a very important part of that, uh, that job or that role. But, you know, I was focused more just like on the craft of the coffee itself for this. Uh, hi, Nick. How's hi, Sam. <laughs> um, I guess, really, I want to expand on what Colleen was saying. Um, the question that you asked at the end of your talk was, uh, where will these people find jobs? Um, and your answer was, here's a job that they could find. And I think my question coming off of that is, who's going to pay them to do it? Um, I want to know, you know, what does that company look like? Uh, because there is... A company? It's called Mom and Dad and Loans <laughs> and Financial Aid, I think. I mean, that's all, most education, or you work through it yourself. Right, absolutely. But, I mean, it, in the, in most of the contemporary world in, uh, you know, companies that pay people uh, to do the things associated with the knowledge sets that come out of their STEM educations, which is what we're basically talking about here. Right. Um, either those people are saddled with crippling debt for the rest of their lives, or they go to work for a very large company that sort of swallows their knowledge set. Um, and so I guess my, my question is, what would a company look like you know, what would the industry have to look like in order to create companies that could pay people to do this job, that could pay people to pay down their debt from this education uh, and still have that knowledge be accessible and still have that knowledge be shared? Right. I mean, that's the market issue in a way, like in terms of supply and demand somewhat. But um, to answer more directly, I've asked that question to the folks at Davis. Like, what, what do you guys think? And... To be honest, I think maybe you'll find this answer a little as depressing as I did, because they said like, you know, fifty-five, sixty-five thousand dollars a year of a salary, like that kind of job, basically makes the math work for other fields. And I was like, really, that's all? Like, but that was their answer. And to some degree, I mean, we, you know, we we have people that we have more than a couple people that we pay a salary like that too. And granted, we're in San Francisco. <laughs> I think. Well, I'm, I've missed the first part of your thing, Colin. 
I missed the first part of what you said. I'm just saying that maybe college is just too expensive in general. Yes. And I did, and I, and I, I did mention, like, there's problems with college and university system, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There are some smug Europeans here who have free education at third level, but they won't go into That's that. Right. Uh, but the other thing is, though, like, in, I don't know what it's like here, but I often encounter people who work in coffee shops, are passionate about coffee, and are studying history or... I don't know, biochemistry or whatever, and they, they stay working in the shop like part-time during uh, term and then full-time outside of that. And at the end of that, they go, yeah, I'm just going to stay here. I'll become a roaster or something. So I think there are people in full-time education that just stay on anyway. So why couldn't they just study coffee all the way through that process? I don't think we need to worry. People are already doing third-level education and working in coffee, so they might as well just study coffee. I mean, again, to dovetail against Matt's talk, I actually try to do the mental exercise of thinking about the things that, like, thinking about the questions that no one's asking. And this is kind of where this sort of grew out of. It's like, we want to get better collectively and individually, but that's an abstract idea. Like, everyone says stuff like that. I want to get richer. I want to get better. I want to get more healthy. But in le like with health, unless you get more specific, it tends to be sort of useless words. And so like, what does that actually mean? You know, and this is not abs absolutely not the answer, like far from it, but it's, it's just throwing it out there. You can get more Nick in around about 30 minutes time uh, where I get the great opportunity to tell Colin he's wrong. Um, for all those who've come up to me today and said you've been very quiet during this tamper tantrum, the next session is the part where I get quite loud. He's been keeping his powder dry. Yeah, right, so we're going to have a debate. We are going to have a debate, but we're going to have a coffee break first, which means we can all go downstairs and harass the people brewing coffee down there, and you can all buy a bag of coffee to take home with you so they don't have to take it to their car, and they can buy beer, right? Beer. Beer. So 30 minutes' time back here um, for the, the last part of the afternoon, and then we're all going for... Beer. And a huge round of applause for this afternoon's speakers as well, please. Thank you.